Today's guest is so chill. She's like super calming. I love it. We are going to talk about gardening, how to keep it simple, how to not use pesticides when you're gardening, uh, especially if you're growing fruits and vegetables. So today's guest helps moms and busy women learn how to grow fresh food at home with confidence and ease so they can lead their families in living healthy, happy, and intentional lives. She lives in Wisconsin, and I am so excited to introduce you to Danielle Smith. I hope you enjoy this episode all about gardening. You're listening to the Half Hippie Podcast with Tara Milo. I'm a half hippie, half princess, cat mom, city girl, introvert, and entrepreneur. I don't fit into a box, and you don't either, but I'm committed to making the world a better place through my lifestyle and my business. I love talking about sustainability because I know that you can make a positive difference without giving up the things you love. Here on the Half Hippie Podcast, we're talking about sustainability and entrepreneurship. We'll share stories about what makes us all half hippie and what our other half does to make a positive impact in the world. Let's go. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do. Yeah, so I, I'm a, a home gardening coach and I specifically uh, like to work with moms, uh, but I can also work with busy women who want, are interested in growing fresh food at home and want it to be uh, easy and enjoyable process rather than being stressful and, and an additional hassle in their busy lives. Um, so I work with them to help them make gardening fit into their lives and, and use it to have a healthier, happier, and more intentional life overall. Yep. That's so cool. I love that because having a garden, I think is so healing. Yeah. There are so many benefits and definitely, you know, the health impacts, you know, everyone kind of always thinks it's, oh, you're growing healthy food. So it'll make you have a more nutritious diet. But even beyond that, there's just so many soul satisfying um, aspects of gardening, being out in nature, you know, taking care of something. And it's, you know, it's really also just very empowering to, grow something from seed because it's a really a magical process and to be involved with that at all um, is kind of awe-inspiring and I think we all need a little bit more awe in our lives. Yes I know just last week I planted some seeds for tomatoes and some flowers cosmos I think and this week I have a little baby tomato coming up out of the soil and I'm so excited because I only have a terrace now or like a little balcony kind of a thing I don't have a garden anymore, but to be able to still make tomato babies, I was, I'm so excited. Just that whole process of getting your hands dirty and growing something new and then seeing it come to life is so fun. Yeah. And it also, I think, I mean, it's absolutely critical for us to connect with our um, food system more because, you know, nowadays we're just so disconnected with how things actually grow and get to our plate that, um, not only are we just like less grateful for our food overall, but we also just like don't come almost like immune to the issue, the, the issues that are out there in the system. And if you don't know about the issues and you don't understand, you know, you might have a vague notion that the environment's important and food system you know, issues are important. But if you don't know the specifics, it's hard for you to advocate um, for change and, and for your values. Speaking of values, what do you think a hippie is? Like, what are some hippie values <laughs> that you... 
can identify with? Oh, so I'm actually, I'm in Madison, Wisconsin. So we are known for being a pretty hippie campus town here. Um, <sighs> and we have a, if anybody knows Madison, it, we have a Willie Street um, that is kind of known as the hippie street for uh, the city. Um, but yeah, I mean, when I think of hippie, I think of somebody who um, understands their connection to nature and to everything else and is thoughtful about their role in the world and how their what they do, how it impacts. Um, and, you know, probably opts out of a lot of the, the modern day status quo, do it just because everyone else is doing it. Um, and then it kind of forges their own path that seems to be a little bit more aligned with their internal values. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think that is very true. I like it. When did you first start identifying with hippies? Um, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I would say if I was talking with someone saying like, I'm a hippie, but I guess I am. I'm sure I am. Right. Like I'm connected <laughs> with nature. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I didn't, people always ask me and they assume because I'm a gardening coach now that like I grew up on like a farm or we had a big garden when we were kids. Um, but we didn't, I, I do remember very vividly asking my mom to garden, but it didn't really work out that well. Cause she wasn't, didn't have that much experience. So, you know, we dabbled in it, but it definitely wasn't like a core piece of my childhood. Um, I really only came to gardening maybe the last, um, you know, six years or so. Um, and then prior to that, I actually have a master's degree in public health, and I did that with a concentration on food systems and uh, chronic B, uh, chronic disease prevention. So definitely coming, you know, public health, I would say, is a hippie sort of an academic field. It's very much understanding that everything is connected, um, that, you know, you, something you do on the community level impacts individuals and individual health likewise impacts larger, um, you know, community health, which impacts global health. Um, so yeah, I would say that's a very hippie, uh, domain in general. Um, yeah. and I, you know, I've always had an interest in health and it, actually when I was in high school, I wanted to be a surgeon and it's interesting how I kind of found my path away from surgeon, which is, I would I'd say not hippie <laughs> um, right? Yeah, and medical model of like fixing things after they, after they happened towards public health, which is very much prevention. Yeah. Um, and again, that thoughtful systems thinking. So, so yeah, I would say, I mean, I think the seed, you know, pun intended has always been there for me. Um, <laughs> yeah. but I would say, you know, when I got my master's degree in my you know mid twenties is probably when I kind of maybe formalized that more. Yeah. Okay. That's really cool. I love the switch from solution. It's almost too late. Damage is done. Surgeon kind of thing back to let's prevent all of this and make things better from the beginning, starting with growing your garden or at least buying a little closer to where you are probably. Yeah, exactly. And I, I reflect on this whole prevention versus cure a lot. And, you know, even with my garden coaching clients, you know, people, one of the biggest issues, you know, people come up or I have weeds everywhere yeah. and they're super stressful or I have disease issues and pest issues. And, you know, all of those things are much harder to cure or treat after they've happened. And they're much easier to actually prevent. Um, but unfortunately, when you Google you know, how to fix a pest issue, the only thing that comes up is, you know, pesticides or, yeah. um, you know, these things that you don't necessarily want to jump to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, prevention is, is a 
much more likelihood of, of succeeding and it's easier, it's cheaper. Um, and you know, then you, you save yourself all that stress and heartache. And it's the same thing about health, you know, taking care of your health ahead of time and, you know, maintaining health and doing the things that we all know we need to do on a daily basis to keep ourselves healthy is much easier than waiting to it, to progress to a disease that you now have to reverse or, or cure. Exactly. And it's more painful. Like it's just so much more fun and delicious to eat food that you grew in your garden and it makes you feel better and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. I want to talk more about that, but first I want to know what's something you do that's totally not hippie. Oh, something I do that's totally not hippie. Oh, man. man, Now you've convinced me that I'm a hippie. Um, (laughs) Good. (laughs) I mean, I would say, you know, in the past and something we're actively moving away from now is doing kind of the standard lawn um, spray thing to keep your, you know, your grass green and the the pre-emergent fertilizer, like the pesticide herbicides and then the, the treatment. Um, and, you know, learning the more that I learn over the past couple of years about the importance of, you know, ecosystem health and pollinator health and all that, you know, we're, we're reevaluating how we're, we're treating our lawn. And, you know, also, you know, it's hard to kind of balance the need to do that with the balance to, uh, you know, please your neighbors and kind of blend in with the neighbors and kind of being okay with how to kind of step out on your own around that. So that's something that we're, you know, actively going through right now and something that like, I've identified as not hippie that I'm not okay with anymore. Um, So I would say that's something that I've been, you know, aware of more and more lately. Yeah, that's a good one because I am seeing a little bit in social media, but it's just in the circles that I'm in. That's like, why do we have lawns? Let's not have lawns. It's not natural and it's not good for anything. But then like, where does the dog run around? I don't know. I mean, it's... And kids and, you know, yeah. you know some, yeah. some lawn is good. And, and it's also, it's a tall order if you're in a suburban neighborhood where everyone has a lawn to just decide you're going to go back natural. Like, yeah, how, is, how are your neighbors going to take that? And, you know, there's education that you're going to have to do um, around that too. And, you know, may, may or may not blend in with, you know, how your cutoff point of your yard to the next one. So mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's, it's these tricky situations we get ourselves in. I think if you identify, you know, as a hippie of, you know, wanting to have these, um, you know, impact, lessen your impact on the environment, but also balancing it with kind of social norms and expectations and, um, and also just, uh, you know, other, other needs in your life, right? Like, you know, like you said, having a pet or a kid to run around is, you know, lawns are nice for that. (laughs) Exactly. And we don't want people to hate hippies for yet another reason. So we have to tread the line and kind of balance it. Like you said, yeah. Right. right. Yep. Cause not everyone's going to get it or understand. Um, right. That, that side of things definitely. Yeah. So when I lived in Ohio, I had a garden and one thing, this was really funny. We had these Japanese beetles that would come and eat all the roses and just do a ton of so much damage and like you were saying, we we only learned how to cure it, how to fix it by hanging a bag of poison, basically. And then the beetles would be attracted to that. And then they would go in the bag and they would die. And then the bag smelled bad because there's a bunch of dead beetles in there and whatever chemicals killing it is yeah. so disgusting. And then I don't know what prompted it. Maybe just having cats. We got bird feeders and we put bird feeders out. 
and all the Japanese beetles were gone because the birds started eating the Japanese beetles. And so it was such a cool lesson for us to learn prevention and using nature and staying within the ecosystem and, and keeping it natural to let the birds come and eat the Japanese beetles. So that was like my favorite thing. My favorite lesson of having a garden was bringing in the birds to kill the Japanese beetles. And we didn't have any pests in the garden, in the vegetable garden. What are some of your favorite like prevention techniques? Like you said, before we get to the point where we have to use pesticides or herbicides, what, what's your favorite thing? Yeah. I mean, I think along the same lines, kind of as a theme is, you know, think about what happens naturally in an environment and try to replicate that as close as possible. And so just like in your instance, you know, nature, nature is smart and nature has these balances and, you know, in a, an environment where there are, you know, a, a food source available, there's going to be something available that wants to eat that food source. So, um, you know, in general, I always recommend, um, with my clients is, you know, they usually are focused on vegetable growing, but I always talk to them about the importance of growing uh, herbs that are, you know, have smells to them and flowers because those bring in the pollinators. And not only are flowers beautiful and are going to just be enjoyable to look at and smell good yourself, but they will actually attract beneficial insects to your garden that are going to help pollinate your, your plants. So you'll have higher yields. And then it actually, they'll bring in um, things like hummingbirds and birds and beneficial insects that actually eat the bad insects. So it's this wonderful web of life that, you know, if you, you know, draw in, um, you know, if you only have the vegetables there, they're kind of just getting the bad ones drawn in. But if you bring in other things like the the really smelly and bright colors attract those beneficial wildlife. And so, like you said, it's a web um, and it's important to, to attract them all. Um, The other thing that I always recommend is, you know, with insects in particular is understanding the life cycle of the insect and how how it actually arrives there. It doesn't, it's, you know, it's not just something that you can't predict. Insects typically have very set schedules of life spans when they, um, when they are in certain life stages, when they emerge, how they emerge, if they crawl versus they fly. And so all of that usually will pinpoint a strategy. And so, you know, with things like um, oftentimes with like cabbage, you'll get um, like a cabbage moth will lay their eggs on your leaves. And then when the leaves hatch, the little baby caterpillars come out and start eating holes in your cabbage plants. And the way to prevent this is to put row cover over it when they are, when they're small. So it literally physically excludes the moth from laying the eggs on during, there's a very set window of time when those moths are, you know, creating eggs and laying eggs in the spring. And once you get past that time period, they're not out there laying eggs anymore. And your plants are actually, um, actually have an immune system built up by that point, once they get bigger to protect themselves. And this, I don't think people realize that plants have immune systems. Like we kind of just think that like they're at the mercy of anything out there, but they are, it's just when they're smaller, they have less of an ability to protect themselves. So if you give them time to mature to a larger size and they have more leaves, they have actually more of an immune system and can kind of fight off um, minor damage, um, with pests or diseases. So those are, that's kind of one core thing that oftentimes gardeners aren't thinking of doing that whole covering during the first part of the spring. Um, but it's super simple. It's, you know, inexpensive and it's really effective. 
Yeah, that's amazing. What a great idea. And it's reusable. Yeah. I mean, yep. you just yep. fold yep. up that Absolutely. cloth and use it next year. Yeah. That's so cool. Do you teach people about companion planting? I'm sure you do. I do. Um, I'm going to go against the grain here, though, and say that 90% of companion planting is BS, honestly. Ah, okay. <laughs> um everybody kind of, so it's largely based on anecdotal evidence of kind of like these guidelines that have been passed down through gardening generations of, you know, plant this next to this, um, and you'll get better yields or better taste or something. And most of that, when it's actually been studied, either it hasn't been studied and proven in a lab, or it's been studied and it's shown to be actually no effect. There are some things that do, um, actually have, um, they like some plants will put out compounds that will stop the growth of other plants. And so those are important to know. Um, but in general, like most of the time, that's not as important. The the kind of, the, for me, companion planting means herbs and flowers and vegetables together. That's yeah. more of an important companion than worrying about, you know, can I put beans next to tomatoes next <laughs> to garlic? Because I think that's when people start to get really overwhelmed with how to lay out their gardens is is trying to look at those companion planting charts and trying to like put this puzzle piece together that really doesn't need to be that complicated. And that's kind of like one of my core things as a gardening coach is to take the complexity out of gardening. And so anything that is, if it has like maybe just like a tiny bit of a benefit, but it's way overcomplicates it, it's out in my book. So, you know, you're still going to have a successful garden, even if you're not following those like rigid companion planting guidelines. So other, other people might have other opinions, but I have that's my, you know, I'm a very evidence-based, um, you know, I want to see research for what I do. And if I don't yeah. see research, um, either in the literature, um, or in like my own experiments that I run, um, then, you know, then I don't really worry about it. Yeah. That's good to know. I don't think I'm trying to think about when I had a garden and I looked at companion planting, but you're right. It was probably too complicated. And I was like, I'm just going to put my stuff where I want to put it, but I always made sure I had flowers Mm -hmm. to attract bees, but also it's nice to have flowers. (laughs) Absolutely. I had a funny thing where I would plant seeds. Like it's easy to plant some seeds, right? Like lettuce and radish and beets, those kind of seeds. And I would just kind of throw them all over the place and kind of shake them into the ground. Mm -hmm. And then they would all come up and then I would have to, like pull some out. What is that called? Thinning them. Yeah. Yeah. And it was heartbreaking because they're my little baby beets and I had to pull some out. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So it's good soul work, but then it's also hard when you have to pull out some of those babies. (laughs) Sacrifice some for the good of the many. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, you're not alone in that. I know a lot of people really struggle with that. And, um, you know, there's, it's absolutely, you need to do it because if you don't do it, you don't have enough nutrients and water available for all of them. And you're not going to get the the, uh, production that you want out of your garden. Uh, What I always recommend doing, and this kind of um, is a little bit of a a solve for that issue is when you're, when you're harvesting them, most things you can eat the greens of. So it almost becomes like a little microgreen. So you don't need to like pull like carrots. Carrots is one that you really need to thin oftentimes. So you have to go out there and you might have to do multiple thinnings over a course of a season. And, you know, when you, when you, um, 
when you thin, instead of just throwing away that extra carrot top, you can, you know, put it on a salad or you can, you know, throw it in a soup or something like this is basically a microgreen. And so you can use it for anything. Uh, and again, most, um, most anything that you're going to be thinning, I'm just trying to think through, you know, you can eat the leaves of and, you know, beet greens, um, you know, radish greens, carrot tops, those are all edible and delicious. And so, you know, use them. And then you, at least I feel a little bit less, you know, at least the, it made it into a nutritive, um, (laughs) you know, it's, it's role in the world was completed. At least it wasn't just wasted, you know, um, and maybe that'll make it a little bit easier for you. Yeah. Okay. That's true. That's a good way to, to solve that issue. Nothing goes to waste. Exactly. (laughs) What about people who don't have a garden space? Like I'm in an apartment now and I miss having a garden, but I can't really have a garden here. Well, I mean, what, what it sounds like you're doing is, is a great uh, compromise of just using Mm -hmm. whatever you have outside, you know, container gardens are, you know, amazing. And for people who are in apartments or, um, you know, kind of in transitional uh, situations. Um, and you know, that you can put a lot of things in containers, um, the, you know, lettuces and herbs do well, many places, um, depending on how much sun you have, that's going to be really the key determining factor of what you can grow out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most people, when they think of starting to garden, they think of these like bountiful harvests of like the tomatoes and the peppers. And, and some people even go to like the pumpkins, but those are going to be the hardest things. Not that they're hard to grow, but they are going to take the longest amount of time to be ready for harvest. They're going to take the most room. They're going to take the most care and they need the most sun. So unless you are really ready for like months of culturing and you have like full sun, like meaning like eight plus hours a day of direct sunlight, yeah. uh, you're better off to stick with those, you know, the greens and the herbs are really great beginners, um, beginner crops. And then root crops oftentimes are kind of a nice medium ground. I, I, to make this simple for people, I say there's shoots, there's roots and there's fruits. So there's three categories and everything falls into those. And so you've got your shoots where you eat the leaves, the roots where you eat the root, and then the fruit where you eat the fruit. But um, those are kind of progressing levels of difficulty and time and footprint. Um, and if you think about it, if to have a successful fruit plant, like a tomato plant, you have to successfully grow the shoot, the yeah. root, and the fruit. So it's kind of like graduated <laughs> levels. And so if you can take as a beginner, it's great to start with the shoots because all you need to grow is the shoot and it's successful. You eat it and yay, good job. Yeah. You don't need to do all three right off the get-go. So always, you know, those herbs and those greens are great for beginners and they're great for people who might not have like the perfect sunlight setup. Mm-hmm. And they have really sh- shallow roots. Um, so yeah. like six inches or so, um, you can do, um, oftentimes, you know, definitely salad greens will do well with six inches. Some herbs get a little deeper than that, but you know, even if you have a 12 foot deep, that should be good for most vegetables. Yeah. Um, and you can do that easily in a container. Yeah, for sure. Uh, talk to me about watering because when, when I made a garden, I, thought I had to water it every day. And one of my friends was like, I don't have time for that. I can't water a garden every day. Yeah. You know what happened. I flooded the garden. I didn't get cucumbers. I didn't get, there were a lot of things that they just don't need watering every day. <laughs> yeah. Well, that they might, depending on where you live and how hot it is. Yeah. Mine but, did not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, what you're looking for is really like one inch of water per week. 
Um, and so it's important for you first off, get a rain gauge so that you know how much they're actually getting, because Mm -hmm. otherwise, you know, you don't know. And, and, you know, some people are like, oh, I'll just rely on like the local weather service reports, but that's not your garden spot. Right. So you want to have a rain gauge just to kind of keep track throughout the week. And then at the end of the week, if you've gotten less than an inch, you know, you need to go out there and do a little bit of a water. Um, and it's better to do, you know, obviously with rainfall events, you can't control those, right. We're, we're, you know, best as much as we would like to be able to affect the weather we can't. Um, but when you're watering, it's best to water deeply once a week versus a little bit every day. Mm-hmm. And the reason for this is water is going to get deep into your soil. And basically the roots are going to be trained to go down to seek out the water. And so they're going to be sturdy anchored into the soil versus if you're watering it every day, very lightly, all the water's at the top. It's going to have these little weak roots that are just like, oh, I'm just hanging out here. And all the water I need is just right here. I don't need to really go very deep. It's, this is the life. And then, uh, you know, wind comes, um, or also the nutrients will get depleted on the top level, but, and there'll be all these nutrients in your soil down below, but your roots won't be going to seek them. Um, so it's, you know, better for deep deep watering once a week. And this is the same thing for house plants. FYI, if anyone has house plants, deep watering once a week versus a little bit every day. Um, and then, um, one thing that people oftentimes don't think of is like the time of day to water. Some people are, you know, I can just go out and water whenever, right. Um, it's best to do it early in the morning. And the reason for this is that if your leaves get wet, they can be subject to some like fungal and mold issues. Mm -hmm. And if you do it early in the morning, the heat will dissipate that, evaporate that water off the leaves by the time the cool night sets in. And then you don't have as as much fungal issues typically in your garden. So in the morning, um, try to avoid getting your leaves wet. So uh, water at the, on the soil near Mm -hmm. the roots and deep, deep infrequently versus shallow frequently. Yeah. Okay. That's a good reminder for me because I've been spraying mine but yeah. even here in the apartment, I need to water it deep instead. Yep. So they yep. Do it right, roots. right on the soil where the, mm-hmm. the, the roots are. Yeah. Good. Awesome. Nice. Those are amazing tips. Thank you for sharing that with yeah, us. You're welcome. What do you do as a gardening coach? Like, do you go to people's houses and help them create a garden? Is it like a long-term program? How does that work? Yeah. So I, um, I started my garden coaching program basically to fill the gap that I saw in the market and deal with my own frustrations of trying to become a gardener. Because right now what we expect gardeners to do is, you know, read blogs and look at YouTube videos or get free advice from neighbors and friends that all frankly may or may not be accurate, might be incomplete. Um, oftentimes they're like conflicting with each other. So you have to try to like figure out who to trust and what's right, what's wrong. Um, and sometimes information online is actually right, but it's just not applicable to your area. Right. Yeah. So it's like so many different variables to like, to even know if the information you're getting is correct. And then it takes time and effort to sift through all that. Um, so what I really, what I had wished existed six years ago when I started gardening is what I've created now. And it's basically, I become your trusted mentor to start your garden. And it's walking through, um, I actually work with my clients long-term. So typically uh, for an entire year, Mm. um, working with you to basically start at, you know, you know nothing about gardening and these are all the foundations that you need to know to understand how plants grow, what they need from you. Then it moves into actual planning of your garden, design, install, and then 
working with you throughout the growing season, you know, as a helping hand to give you guidance and, you know, maintenance tips and harvest tips, um, and all the way through to storage. Um, and then how do you use what you grow? So it's meant to be a one-stop shop for if you want to have a garden and you don't want to waste, you know, your time and, and, um, energy on things that may or may not be correct and just being stressed and overwhelmed, um, really walking you through that entire process. That's awesome. What a yeah. great idea. Yeah. It's so and helpful. I, yeah. And I work remotely with clients. So, um, you know, mm-hmm. if, if people live here locally to me in Madison, Wisconsin, then we could explore having me be on site, but generally I would just work remotely with my clients and, um, help, help you learn your unique situation where you're located and your, um, your climate so that, you know, in the future you can, uh, garden effectively without stress on your own. Yeah. Is business booming because everybody's inside and we're all like buying plants and trying to stay in? Yeah, it's been really interesting with the with the pandemic. People have been flocking to gardening. I don't know. I, I think there's a couple of things. One is that people are just at home, right? So you have to have a hobby to do and you're just looking outside and you're like, oh, well, I could grow some food. Yeah. Um, I think also with the shakeup in our food supply last year, it made a lot of us a little wary about, um, you know, the strength of our food supply. And, you know, if a pandemic can happen, what else can happen? And, you know, maybe I should know how to grow food if I should ever need that skill. Right. So, yeah. So I think it's kind of both of those two things have happened, but yeah, house plants are all the rage. Um, vegetable gardening is all the rage. And, um, you know, there was actually last year and this year, there's been seeds, seed shortages, and oh. delays in, in seed um, fulfillment. So people had to put, you know, I put my orders in in December this year to make sure I got them. And they actually, like my favorite seed um, supplier had to shut down for a couple of weeks because they were inundated with orders. Um, oh. So so it's been, you know, lots of more people. So if you're if you're wanting to garden, get your seeds ASAP because it might take a couple of weeks to get them to you. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's definitely, it's uh, on the rise right now. Good. Which is great. It's great to see uh, people taking advantage of the opportunity that they have to be at home, um, to, to gain a new skill. And, you know, it's my, my goal and my vision that everyone has a garden at home. So I'm happy to, to see more people getting into the industry. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm so glad to hear that. Cause I I'm similar. Like I, I buy everything from the farmer's market or make sure it's local yeah. because I don't have a garden here, but, uh, I still do that too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. People ask me like, oh, you must grow like all your own food. And you like, you never go to the store. I'm like, no, that's not what this is about. This is just, you know, have something that connects you with the earth, um, gives you some food, but yeah, I still go to farmer's markets every single week and I still go to the grocery store and, um, you know, it's not about, I'm, I'm not teaching homesteading by any means. That's, that's (laughs) not my niche. Um, it's, you know, these kind of smaller scale, kitchen gardens to do at home, um, you know, with your family, if you have one as a bonding experience and as a way for you just to kind of slow down and get more present and also live more seasonally. I think a lot of us just are so disconnected with like the seasons in some respects. And it's just a lovely way to just feel like you're part of the whole, um, in a new way. Yeah, that's beautiful. I do have to say, once you grow a tomato, you will never buy a tomato at the grocery store because they don't taste like anything. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's pretty amazing how different some things taste homegrown. Um, yes. And, you know, it's you'll never waste a tomato again either, right? right. Because if you, when you buy them at the store, A, they taste bad. So that's why they go bad. Yeah. But also it's just like you can just go and buy another pint tomorrow if you want, right? And yeah. they're cheap. 
Um, but when you build, when you grow it at home, you realize how much effort went into that and, yeah. and they taste good. So, you know, you'll make sure that one way or another, you're, you know, freezing it or you're canning it, or you're, you're eating it fresh. You're, you're going to make sure that that gets used, um, which reduces food waste, which makes hippies happy. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's so true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I'm curious about a couple other things. Um, thank yeah. you for sharing all of that with us. Absolutely. What's something you wish you were doing better besides the lawn, but like something you wish you were doing better for the environment? I mean, I think with the pandemic, um, one of the things lately that has been weighing a little bit on me is all the cardboard boxes being sent to my house with the online shopping. Um, You know, it's it's convenient to buy online and, you know, especially, you know, when you're counting on your health, you know, by not going out, it's, it's, you know, protecting you and your family. Um, but, you know, at some point of the day, you know, you realize how much of an impact that's having in terms of the shipping costs to get to you and the fuel use. And then you've got these boxes that, you know, needed to be sent out and, and I don't know, they never fails. Like they always send me like the hugest box for like the smallest thing. And then it just like, it probably didn't make that big of a difference in the cost of that, but it's just something about it. It's just like, this is wrong. Like this is a silly way that we've decided to structure how we get goods out to people. Um, so, so yeah, I'm definitely, you know, trying to, again, strike that balance of, you know, convenience and what I need in my life to get through on a daily basis with what, what is the impact of this? And, um, and I think it's also just hard to, um, to kind of reconcile, like, your impact is seems to be so minimal in the grand scheme of things. So it's like, okay, if I cut back on my shipping, what impact is that really going to have anyways? And it it needs to be, you know, we need to channel that into more of a collective advocacy, you know, systems change approach, because, you know, it's important to be doing things, you know, on a day-to-day basis in your own lives, but you can have such more of an impact if you're actually joining together and making change happen at, you know, the corporation. I can think of one corporation in particular scale um, or, you know, the legislative scale um, to actually have an impact because until things change um, with everybody, you know, whether or not you put one order in a week or one a month, that's a minimal change. It might make you sleep better at night because you feel like you're not contributing to the problem, but the problem is still at large. Yep. Yeah, it would be a good business if someone could come up with a good thing to do with all those cardboard boxes and all that packing material. I mean, I I compost as much as I can. Mm -hmm. Um, That's one great thing. If you have a compost file at home, you can shred up uh, your cardboard and a lot of packing materials. I definitely don't recommend doing anything that's like coated with like a plastic coating that shouldn't go in the compost. But if it's just like the straight cardboard that's... um, you know, like just pulp, wood pulp. Right. Yeah. yeah. You can, you can put through a, a shredder or just like chop up and that'll go into compost. So, um, and you can actually use cardboards really great for if you're starting new garden beds to put down on the bottom as like yeah. a weed blocker to start. Um, so reuse as much as you can. Um, and I try to do that, but even with that, there's some point, like I just, there's something else I, I have that I need this for. Right. Um, and, and you don't know when you put them in the recycling bin and they take the recycling away if it's actually <laughs> I know. ending up recycled or not. Yeah. I like to believe it is, but we never know. Yeah. yeah. Are you optimistic about the future of climate change and the environment and all of that? I am just because I, I don't know any other way to be. You know, I, 
I think we have a long way to go in terms of convincing people that need to be convinced that it's real and that something needs to happen in order to make a shift. Um, you know, I work, you know, I come from an academic background, so I work with a lot of scientists and scientific communication is a really challenging thing to do to cut through the uncertainty that's inherent in scientific research to make a message that actually like gets understood and implemented by the general public is just a really tricky task. And, um, you know, people see research that has unclear, unclear lessons or like conflicting lessons as lack of evidence. And actually what that means is that's just the scientific method. And over time we come to a consensus and as more evidence points to towards the same thing, we start to learn what the truth likely is, but you never know for certain. And so that's just a really hard approach for people who aren't in science to sometimes understand that yeah. just because one research study said that, you know, it's not true. It doesn't mean that the hundred others that were done aren't wrong or wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think we're heading in the right direction and, you know, I'm encouraged with recent policy um, efforts, but I think we have a lot more to go. And I, you know, I hope that we, you know, with the younger generations, I think being more clued into the importance of environmentalism um, and just like social equity in general. Um, I think as those people, as my generation and the generation underneath me start going into those leadership roles that they can really have an impact, we're going to start seeing the change. And I just, I hope that we can have that happen before we kind of reach a point of no return. Yeah. Okay, good. That's a good reason to be optimistic. We're all looking yeah. to the younger generation, yeah. but they are, they're doing the work. Mm-hmm. It's really lovely. Speaking of lovely, you're lovely. Thank you so much yeah, for joining for me. <laughs> yeah. And for sharing all of this good stuff. Do you have something I can share with people? Like, do you have a freebie or yeah. So I, um, I mean, the best way to connect with me that I would really like to get the word out about is I have a free Facebook group um, okay. that is, it's tailored for moms. It's called Garden Like a Mother. Um, but if you're uh, wanting to join and even if you don't have kids, you're welcome to uh, apply to join the group. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can find that on Facebook and I do a weekly live show in there. I share lots of tips and tricks about gardening. Um, and so it's just fun to come hang out and, and learn about gardening. Yeah. Um, beyond that, uh, something that I did develop recently in response to a lot of confusion in my group members about when to start seeds is I have a kind of a simplified seed starting spreadsheet. Um, okay. and I could offer that, um, as a, a freebie for people to kind of cut through the confusion around when to actually start seeds. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if it's better to do it inside or outside, depending on the crop. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very cool. Thank yeah. you. Well, that was super fun. She is so knowledgeable. I love how she comes from a place of research and actual science and not just, you know, reading things on the internet and hoping everything is applicable to her. So she's helping us grow better gardens, easier and scientifically proven. Very cool. If you like this episode and this podcast, be sure to hit subscribe or follow so that you get all the episodes and follow me at half hippie podcast on Instagram all week. And I'll be sharing some more tips about gardening and how to make it easy and beautiful and fun to grow your own vegetable garden. Thank you for listening. Hit subscribe and I'll catch you soon.